Hi, Strangeville listeners. This is your host, Will Johnson. Today, we wanted to bring you a preview from another podcast we've been enjoying. It's called Cautionary Tales, and like Strangeville, it's all about the odd tales that make us think twice. Best-selling author Tim Harford takes you on a wild ride through the extremes that human behavior and nature can throw at us, looking at the greatest mistakes and tragic catastrophes from the past to see the valuable lessons we can learn from them. Some stories will delight you, others may scare you, but they'll all make you wiser. In today's preview, Tim dives into the dark side of Halloween and explores Halloween sadism, where a stranger puts something dangerous in the treats collected by children. Razor blades in apples, rat poison in chocolate bars, that sort of thing. I'm sure you've heard accounts of this moral panic in the media. They seem to creep up every October. But is trick-or-treating really something to worry about? A young sociologist named Joel Best became curious, and what he found was that there's a far more likely danger awaiting children on Halloween night. All right, here's the preview. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. You can hear the full episode and more from Cautionary Tales wherever you get podcasts. Pasadena, Texas, 1974. Someone is getting ready for Halloween. He lays out five pixie sticks on the kitchen counter. They're large plastic tubes nearly two feet long, filled to the brim with fizzing candy. Quite a prize for the local trick-or-treaters. Then he takes a sharp pair of scissors and one by one he snips off the top of each pixie sticks. And from each one he pours an inch or two of candy into the sink. He turns the faucet and the water rinses the candy powder away, fizzing as it vanishes down the drain. Next, he unscrews the cap from a large bottle filled with a white powder. The bottle has an official-looking label on it. Some kind of chemical? He grabs a spoon and digs into the powder, heaping it into one pixie sticks tube after another, replacing the missing candy. He's hurrying a little now, He puts down the spoon and screws the cap back on the bottle. He reaches for a stapler. A couple of staples per tube does the job, sealing their new contents away. Stapler away. Scissors away. Run the faucet again. He rinses the spoon and dries it. He picks up some soap and thoroughly washes his hands. Then he dries them. Five pixie sticks tubes still lie on the counter. Is anyone ready for some trick-or-treating? I'm Tim Harford, and you're listening to Cautionary Tales. Fifteen years earlier, Fremont, California. Trick or treat, squealed the children as they rang the doorbell. The door swung open. On the threshold stood an ordinary-looking couple. On the doorstep gathered a gang of tiny little vampires and ghosts and monsters, holding out their treat bags and waiting for candy. Treat or trick? Smiling, the grown-ups dropped a handful of candy into each bag and the spooky little sprites scampered off to the next house. But when they tasted the candy, 
something wasn't right. Some of the treats were little white heart-shaped pills. They were sugary on the outside, but the inside was yucky. Some of the kids complained to their parents about the substandard treats on offer. The parents of Fremont were seriously worried. Looking for evidence, they sent some older children back to the house with treat bags. The children returned with lollipops and more of those unpleasant little pills. The police were summoned and paid a visit to the house of Dr. William Shine, a dentist with an impeccable reputation. It was 1959, a simpler time, a more innocent time. Nobody could quite get their heads around what Dr. Shine seemed to have done, but it was hard to deny. The pills were analysed and found to be a professionally manufactured laxative, suggesting that Dr. Shine had a rather twisted sense of humour. Given that an adult dose was two pills, and some children had 30 pills in their treat bags, the risk of tragedy was clear enough. Eventually, the police recovered nearly 500 pills. Fortunately, none of the children were sick enough to go to hospital. A few suffered cramps or vomited. Most of them spat the unpleasant pills out immediately. The main damage was to the peace of mind of the community, along with a self-inflicted damage to Dr. Shine's reputation. For a while, it seemed as though he'd face prison time and lose his licence to practice. But in the end, he escaped with probation and a fine of $525. And that was that. A strange, cruel joke in which sheer luck prevented tragedy. Something unique, the kind of thing that would surely never happen again. My daughter says that Halloween is her favourite holiday. She says it's even better than Christmas. How so, I ask? Because it's about community, she says. Christmas is inward-looking, the immediate family huddled together having fun at home. Halloween is outward-looking. You don't spend it at home. You spend it wandering around your neighbourhood. Gifts aren't wrapped and handed to a select few. They're doled out liberally to all visitors. Children experience kindness not just from friends and family, but kindness from strangers too. But not all strangers are kind. William Shine's laxative prank is the first example I can find of what is sometimes called Halloween sadism, where a stranger puts something dangerous into the treats collected by children on Halloween. Rat poison in the chocolate bar. Needles in marshmallows. That sort of thing. My daughter's vision of Halloween as a way to meet your community and realise that strangers can be nice people too, that vision dissolves on contact with Halloween sadism. And that's what makes Halloween sadism such a grotesque act of betrayal. It's toxic, figuratively and literally, poisoning the relationship children have with their community, eating away at the very idea that someone you don't know might nevertheless give you something of value. No wonder we're warned. That plump red apple that Junior gets from a kindly old woman down the block, cautioned the New York Times in 1970, may have a razor blade hidden inside. Well, it may. But does that happen often? 
Indeed it does, noted Newsweek shortly before Halloween 1975. If this year's Halloween follows form, a few children will return home with something more than an upset tummy. In recent years, several children have died and hundreds have narrowly escaped injury from razor blades, sewing needles and shards of glass purposefully put into their goodies by adults. That's just awful. It implies that serious incidents occur every single year. And in 1983, the Dear Abby column, syndicated in over a thousand newspapers, agreed. It's Halloween time again, and time to remind you that somebody's child will become violently ill or die after eating poisoned candy or an apple containing a razor blade. But after reading such alarming warnings, a young sociologist named Joel Best became curious. Best had a wide variety of interests. He was interested in crime and in social problems. But he was puzzled by these stories. Best had found that criminals and drug addicts always had a reason for what they did, even if we might object to those reasons. I could not for the life of me figure out what the reason for poisoning Halloween treats might be, he told me. And some of these stories sounded a bit more like Grimm's fairy tales than reality. A razor blade in the plump red apple from the kindly old woman. Seriously. But when Joel Best told his friends he thought these stories might not be real, his friends were outraged. Of course they were real. So... Best started to look for data on these appalling crimes. How often were children poisoned or maimed by evil strangers peddling treats? Not easy to say. There is no crime of Halloween sadism, so crime statistics wouldn't cover it. The dentist, William Shine, was convicted of outraging public decency for handing out laxatives to neighbourhood children. That's the kind of crime they charge you with when... Everyone agrees you've been a complete bastard, but nobody can quite nail you with anything more specific. But Joel Best figured that whenever a child died or was hospitalised by a Halloween treat, the newspapers would cover the story in the first few days of November. And so he got hold of the major newspapers dating back to 1958, the year before William Shine's laxative stunt, and carefully studied the days immediately following Halloween to find out just how often this had happened. The newspapers reported some worrying incidents. In 1964, two teenage girls, Elsie and Irene Drucker, knocked on the door of Helen File, a neighbour in Greenlawn, Long Island. Mrs File gave them a foil-wrapped pack of treats, but when they opened it, they were disgusted to find steel wool, dog biscuits and a bottle cap sized container full of ant poison. They showed the parcel to their father, he called the police, and Mrs File was duly arrested and charged with endangering the health and life of a child. The judge committed her to a hospital for psychiatric examination. It's hard for me to understand how any woman with sense or reason could give this to a child. Well, fair enough. Mrs. File did not display good judgment. Her husband told the New York Times that she'd given out the trick packages only to teenagers. She'd told them explicitly it was a Halloween joke, and she'd been giving out real candy to younger children all day. 
I've no reason to doubt that explanation, and in fact, it would actually be quite a good joke if it wasn't so self-evidently flirting with disaster. That said, the experts tell me that even if a young child did get hold of ant poison, it would be unlikely to do them serious harm. Okay, so now Joel Best had two cases. William V. Shine, who in 1959 gave laxative pills to neighbourhood children and made some of them sick for an evening, and Helen File, who in 1964 gave teenagers inedible household supplies from the cupboard under the kitchen sink and told them to their faces that it was a Halloween joke. Two stupid, thoughtless people, and thankfully, no lasting harm done. But by the 1970s, newspapers were warning before each Halloween that severe injuries and death were frequent occurrences. It's true that after each Halloween, accounts of trouble had become more common in the media. In the early 1960s, the newspapers would rarely have any incident to report. Yet, in the three years from 1969 to 1971, there were 31 incidents in the press. The strange thing was noted Joel Best, while there were a lot of reports of Halloween sadism, most of them seemed fairly minor. Most of the time, nobody was hurt. A child just pointed to something worrying in a candy bar. Indeed, on closer inspection, many of the cases seemed to be, well, somewhat implausible. A few were proven hoaxes. Others just seemed rather unlikely. Joel Best noted one case where a boy had eaten half a candy bar, then complained to his parents, I think there's ant poison on this, Mum. And indeed there was, on the unbitten end. The child had, of course, applied the poison himself, was perfectly unharmed, and presumably thought it would be a hilarious Halloween prank. In 1973, the trade magazine of the newspaper industry, editor and publisher, reviewed newspapers' efforts to track down actual cases of Halloween sadism. Editor and publisher magazine concluded that almost every report was a hoax. There was one strange and awful exception. Cautionary Tales will return in a moment. That was a preview of Cautionary Tales from Pushkin Industries. Find Cautionary Tales wherever you get podcasts.